0: Spiritual naps can come in different forms, but I think we're going to do the thing this morning that God promises He'll use the most to give us rest. He gives us His Word. It exposes us to Him and to ourselves, and so it's my prayer that you'll enter in with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. I'm not going to read the text to start, uh, but this is different. As I mentioned, we finished Matthew chapter 10 last Lord's Day, and so... After today, Corey and I and the kids are going to take five Sundays away from Christ's community, and I'll say more about that later. But it really prompted me to say, Lord, what is rest? Let's talk about what, what is rest. And so, you know, a question I've been asked is, Jim, what are you going to do on a sabbatical? Which is usually after the question of what's a sabbatical or why does a pastor get a sabbatical? But let me just start with that question. What are you going to do on your sabbatical? And my three-word answer is pursue God's rest, which is very different than to just pursue rest. Totally different things as I'm studying and praying and thinking. So today I thought we should talk about what the Bible says about rest, because, you know, on our sabbatical, yes, we'll go to the beach, we'll go backpacking, we'll go camping, we'll be resting, but all of that can be very unrestful, spiritually speaking. It can be destructively exhausting, quite frankly. And so I thought it'd be wise for us to talk together about what the Bible says about rest. And so would you stand with me? I'm just going to pray. We'll read the text as we go forward this morning. But I want to ask you to join me in prayer for God to work in this time. Father, we ask that you'd hear us as we ask for your help. Spirit, move in our hearts to show us the glory of the rest you offer to us in the gospel. And today, would we not have evil, unbelieving hearts that are hardened to your rest? Would we believe that we can, by faith, enter into God's rest? As the scriptures tell us here, we just ask for help. Wherever anyone in this room is, in a level of physical or emotional or spiritual exhaustion, would you intersect because you're sovereignly gracious and good and you promise to give rest. And so that's our request and that's our prayer. We pray you'd help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. This will be more topical, but still I want to stay in the text and it'll be more personal, um, which I don't think will be dangerous or unwise, maybe emotional, but it is going to be what's going to be. I don't know if you know this. I, I often will say about 20 years I've been in ministry. You know, today might be the 20th year to the very Sunday anniversary of my being an ordained minister of the gospel. Graduated seminary in May of 2003. Corey and baby Lena and myself moved to Kingsport, Tennessee. And Sometime in June, I was ordained and installed. For two decades, this is what the Lord's confirmed to me, that the hardest times come when I am restless in my mind and in my body, but mostly in my heart. When I just can't put something down, I just can't let it go. It might be how a teaching experience went, rehearsing it in my head, or it could be a meeting with someone, or what someone said, or a conflict that is going on among other people, and this can then lead to fear, which is restless. It can lead to anxiety or a longing for wisdom. It could be a good and a holy burden. But if I'm not able to set something down to be with my family or to sleep, there's a problem. Outside of my notes, but just, I've said this before, I still, I'll never forget the day. We were taking family to Central Park for the first time in the church plant. And it was an hour away to drive to New York City. And I was laying in Central Park on the grass because I couldn't get the pain to go away in my stomach. Because I didn't know how to set things down. Or rest. Restless exhaustion is what we need to start thinking about as we enter into this. Because restlessness is exhausting, isn't it? Think about physical restlessness. Think about how it can be caused by an inadequate diet. We know that. It can be caused by lack of exercise. It can be caused by lack of sleep. We know that. It can be caused by work and busyness and seasons of life with master's degree, medical school. It can be caused by all sorts of busyness, but... It's really more connected to Ecclesiastes 2.11, where Kohelet says, I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, it was all vanity, a striving after the wind. That's what busyness and excessive work can feel like. And what's interesting is sometimes when we're exhausted, we don't even know the cause. Maybe this has happened to you. Look, and I've talked to one of our children recently, like, I don't need to know the cause, but it's like there's this low-grade depression and anxiety underneath every bit of your countenance. Something is causing burden and restlessness in you. Sometimes we don't even know what it is. Often it's connected to no margin in life, just no more emotional bandwidth. I just can't take anything more. The scaffolding is all going to fall down. Put a quote on the back of your bulletin. I won't read all of it, but it's from Richard Swenson in his 1992 work, Margin. Maybe you've read this. He talks about the ubiquitous contemporary absence of margin. And he said that 30 years ago. He says, we must have room to breathe. We need freedom to think and permission to heal. Our relationships are being starved to death by velocity. No one has time to heal, let alone love. Our children lay wounded on the ground, run over by our high-speed good intentions. Is God now pro-exhaustion? Doesn't he lead people by still waters anymore? And I know, I just read that to you, as probably one of the most busy people you know who doesn't ever stop by my own struggle, oftentimes. And it's not just physical restlessness. It's not just calendrical, if that's even a word, the calendar, how busy we are. It's spiritual. So let me read to you something that I find rather interesting. It's not the original part. It's not from C.S. Lewis's 1942 Screwtape Letters. It's a 21st century adaptation that I found. So it's not Lewis, okay? Screwtape is the grumpy demon uncle of Wormwood, and he sends letters to young Wormwood about how to inflict damage on the enemy's kingdom. Well, who's the enemy? God. Right? So it's, it's a demon writing to a demon about how to torment those who God would give peace to. Here's what Screwtape writes. He says, You impress me, my zealous wormwood. All have heard of your proposals to the Noise Proliferation Committee. Indeed, places of solitude and moments of silence grow ever more scarce in the enemy's vast and vulgar dominion. Remember, the enemy is God. Oh, what euphoria to see his insufferable children constantly multitasking, rushing to fill the dead air with a cacophony of noise. Keep in mind, Wormwood, that solace, solitude, silence, reflection is a breeding ground for all manner of destructive outcomes. Rest gives them refreshed bodies and clear minds. Clarity draws them to that which we hate the most, truth. In such moments, their vision grows strong and their purpose is rekindled. I warn you, for hell's sake, do not let them rest. Your despicable uncle, Screwtape. Very personal and very spiritual. The enemy of God's rest who doesn't know how to rest himself will tempt us to death by distraction to such self-consuming versions of rest that the exhaustion only increases and our spiritual maturity just, this is very personal. I was at General Assembly with Bill and Troy and AJ two weeks ago, and on Tuesday afternoons they launched the uh, the, the, the whole assembly with seminars. And so I was looking for this seminar I was going to go to. It was very crowded, and I was trying to find a room that was going to talk about what the church in the West can learn from Chinese Christians with their persecution, with their discipleship, and that's where I wanted to go. And so I saw a crowded room over here, and I started to walk toward the crowded room, and as I got closer, I saw that the instructor was Dan Doriani. You've heard me quote from him in some of the commentaries I've used, professor at Covenant Seminary, and I was standing on the outside of the wrong room for what I thought I needed to hear. But I looked at the title on the wall and it said, this seminar is about moral failure and godly character in pastoral leadership. And it was just crowded, way more packed out than this. And I, like spiritual gravity, I was like, I guess I need to go to this seminar. And so I found a little spot on the wall, much the same as a lot of you. I had to look around a post He was humorous because it was very well led because his content was very heavy. It is very heavy to talk to a large room full of pastors who voluntarily came to sit in a seminar on pastoral failure. And he talked about pastoral failure that comes in the form of exhaustion and addictions and plagiarism and adultery and power abuse or suicide. He talked about the mind of the pastor and the unique pressures. He talked about how churches are often far more interested in highly skilled people than they are the character and health of the pastors they call. He talked through pastoral ambition and how oftentimes pastors come in without without a ton of ambition, actually sometimes not sure what they want to do, but then as opposition pushes against them for year after year or decade or decade, pride starts to creep in and self-ambition comes in the form of self-protection. We examined 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5, and then he said this. He said, sadly, so many pastors start well. And at the age of 45, or give or take, I'm 45. They quit or they fall. Why did he say that age? Data will show why he said that age. But he quoted from Paul Tripp. He said, you know, a lot of pastors are like middle-aged men who mean to take care of their body, but they put on five pounds every year. He said, I believe sincerely pastors who are in Christ mean to be spiritually healthy. They mean to rest. But if restless exhaustion and self-ambition and perceived personal inadequacy all collide... To quote Doriani, suddenly nothing is more attractive than leaving ministry altogether. You could hear a pin drop, kind of like right now. If this sermon goes long, I usually talk fast, so I don't ever account for silence. So, sorry about that if that happens. But here's what got me. At the end of his talk, he said, three questions for you. You might be in danger if you answer no to any or all of these questions. First question, are other people glad to be a part of a team that you are on or you are leading? And so I love working at Christ Community. I think our staff and our team love it, so I thought, okay, I'm safe. I think they'd like being here. Next question, do you have any friends? Like real friends? Like Proverbs 9, 7 to 10 friends that will actually... Rebuke you and reprove you because they love you and they see when you're in dangerous places So I started to think uh oh i'm on more shaky ground now And the third question was this Can you just finish a task and then rest? I talked to a friend who's also 45 as we went out for dinner that night and he said that third question was just a punch in the gut And I thought to myself can I finish a task and then just rest do I know how to do that? Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 3. It's in your bulletin, just the first section, verses 7 to 13, and then verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they'll, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. I exhort, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 18... And to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter rest because of unbelief. Let's get into the text. The author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95, which Pastor Bill read earlier. And it's about the wandering and the complaining and the griping and the groaning to God. And what did the people of God actually do in the wilderness? They demanded a different kind of rest. They wanted it to be easy. They want to stop here. And God said to those of that generation, in his wrath, he said, I swear you will never enter my rest you will not go into the promised land and so hope all that introduction that i shared leads us to just at least hear this one major thing that comes out of hebrews 3 the wilderness of unbelief is exhausting unbelief is exhausting restlessness period end of sentence unbelief brings exhausting Restlessness we have to get that chapter 3 verse 18 they were not able to enter my rest because they didn't believe verse 12 it's because they had evil unbelieving hearts that fell away from the living God who would offer rest. Restless exhaustion, it comes as a result of unholy disobedience, of doubt in God's holiness, of hard-heartedness not to see it, and then if we're too hard-hearted to see that we're bucking up against the God of rest, then we won't repent and ask for mercy, for him to bring rest to our soul and to our bodies. Why does this happen? Well, the author of Hebrews says it's because sin is deceptive. Verse 13 You can't be alone if you want to know God's rest. You can't be on an island. Exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, that you will not fall into unbelief by the deceitfulness of sin. I've shared this many, many times. But remember, whenever we see sin described as deception, we have to remember that deception to be deception, by definition, you can't know it's happening while it's happening. You can never know you're being deceived or you're not deceived. You're informed. And you're rebelling. So deception means we won't see it happening when it's happening. And so the author of Hebrews says, so you need to have friends who will exhort you daily, who push back with more than one question if they see that your exhaustion of unbelief is starting to surface. See, in an unbelief, we spurn the God of spiritual rest. So think of it this way. Imagine God promises he'll give rest to our anger because we, we can trust that he's the God of justice. He'll deal with the injustice we're angry about. But if we don't ever believe that, then the anger will be so exhausting it will consume us. That's one example. The God of rest promises he'll lead us beside still waters. Psalm 23. What's the problem? Well, Jeremiah 6, verse 16. This is the problem. Thus says the Lord to his people, stand by the roads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask for where the good way is, then walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. No, God, I don't trust that you will provide rest for my soul. I'm going to walk a path that I think will bring more rest, more release, Why do we do this? Well, because of the deceit of sin. Sin confuses us to believe that my life is my own, and therefore I can dictate what I need to be healthy. That's deception to cause us to think that way. I don't need to ask for mercy. I don't need to orbit around the God of creation, the God of redemption. I can orbit just fine around my identity and my feelings and my performance and my energy. And then when it doesn't satisfy and it doesn't work, what's the net result? We're exhausted. I do look back and think that over the last 20 years, I've just met a lot of perpetually exhausted Christians that have never seemed to be unexhausted. Why is that? I think the scriptures say, well, here's why. Because we add sin to sin. So let me read you a little bit from the prophet Isaiah. You can mark this later. It's Isaiah chapter 30. I'll touch a few verses there. Listen to what Isaiah says to a rebellious people. He says, oh, stubborn children, declares the Lord. You carry out a plan, but it's not mine. You make an alliance, but it's not of my spirit, that you add sin to sin. You sit down to go down to Egypt, but you don't ask my direction. You try to take Refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. Therefore, the protection of Pharaoh is going to turn to your shame. We add sin to sin. Here's what the prophet's saying. It's exhausting to run to Egypt for protection instead of repenting and turning to God for protection. And if you run to Egypt for protection with all their horses and all their military might, what's going to happen is Egypt will not protect you. And you will be running and you will be tired and you will be more unsafe than you were before you turned to Egypt. That's that's what Isaiah is saying, but maybe it's workaholism. You're tired, so you run back to work because you can control it and see the outcomes. Maybe it's money. You're spiritually exhausted, so you think, I just need to have enough so I can do more with what I have. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's illicit pleasures. Maybe it's the self-creation of a new identity that culture confirms and tells you you'll find meaning there. But, but, but the point is we launch ourselves forward to find rest. And the Bible says there is no rest there if you do it outside of the direction of the word of God. You, you, you'll do things that make you temporarily feel restful. It will be a release and you will be spiritually exhausted and bankrupt at the end of that thing that was never made to give you rest. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Remember, I shared with you a quote from Paul Tripp a while ago. I'll paraphrase it. He says, We don't just suffer sin, we suffer the way that we suffer the sin that we're suffering. Right? So that's what Isaiah chapter 30, Isaiah says this. He says, Thus says the Holy One, because you despise the word and trust in oppression, you rely on Egypt, therefore this iniquity is going to be like a breach in a high wall to you. Think of a dam, it's just a little breach. It's going to start to bulge out, about to collapse. Its breaking will come suddenly and in an instant. What Isaiah says is if you suffer the sin that you're suffering the wrong way, you pursue rest and release in something that won't bring rest and release, you're going to be like a damn wall that's starting to stretch, 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 and then it implodes. And I guess it often happens for pastors at around age 45. Sudden collapse, like an untamed addiction, like a family that falls apart, like a public scandal that wrecks a reputation and doesn't reflect the purity and the glory and the goodness of the church of Jesus. Isaiah 30, verse 15. But, thus says the Lord, if you return, by rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust will be your strength. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. So here's the picture, and we're going to move into Hebrews 4 in a second. But first, when does the Lord wait to be gracious and merciful? When does the Lord wait to give us rest? Isaiah says, in the moment you believe. So if there's any phrase I want you to take away from the today, it's not that sin is exhausting. It's, it's really simple. In this moment. In that moment, in this moment, in that moment, this is when rest is offered to us by God who waits to be gracious. Here's an example. Imagine a parent or a marriage feeling like you just can't take anymore, only to find out that at the same moment, three or four situations have piled up in your home with your children. Rebellion. Deceit, danger. In that moment, it is so easy in the exhaustion to look for other solutions to mask the pain. To look for other things that will bring temporary rest. And what the scriptures say is, no, we return to God by word and prayer and we say, I don't know what to do, but I trust you. I don't know how to forgive this infraction, but you forgave me. I don't think you can fix this and the future is going to be safe for this child or for our family or for your church or forever. But I will trust you because you say to go back to you. I don't want to turn to any other solution. Not my anger and rage at home. Not control and manipulation. Not some pressure relieving personal addiction. In this moment, in that moment, This week I did a Charles Simeon Trust online preaching workshop. Horrible week for it to be scheduled six months ago. I didn't know it was the last week before I leave for a while. Two days worth of getting my nose punched in the face by other preachers about ways I can become a better teacher, ways I can ask better questions, and I just felt like the biggest failure at 3 p.m. Eastern time every day as I got off this Zoom call. Every day. In this moment or that moment, will I drive home and say, God, did you call me? God, is your will sure? God, are you sufficient? God, what are you teaching me? God, I don't want to be about self-defense. God, I don't want to be angry. God, I don't want to quit. To whom do you turn in this moment, in that moment? Because when we turn to God, let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 4. It's in your bulletin. What does he say about those who believe him? Verse 3, he says, we who have believed enter his rest. But verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. And since then we have a great high priest whose passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, our faith. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, was tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us then, with confidence, with deep faith, draw near to the throne of grace, to the place of rest, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in that time of need. So, in this moment or in that moment, if we will believe, We will enter God's rest in our hearts as we wait. A rest remains for the people of God is what the author of Hebrews says. And so let me just go through this. What is this Sabbath rest that the scriptures say? Well, verse 9, we get to rest from our work. The author of Hebrews goes back to God resting from his work at creation. Says it very explicitly in chapter 4, verse 4. I didn't read that to you. But a Sabbath rest is an extension of creational design, right? And so I'll go into this quickly, but it needs to be said. Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3 God finished the creation of the heavens and earth and all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day he rested, and then he blessed the day and made it holy. Deuteronomy 5, Moses commanded, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, not just for you, but all in your household. The Confession of Faith articulates very clearly that God appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to Him. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, it was the last day of the week, but from the resurrection of Christ, it's changed to the first day of the week, which Scripture now calls the Lord's Day. A Sabbath rest is held out for those who believe that the Lord rested on the seventh day. So we will rest and we will worship and we will stop working and we will take a day for his glory, for his pleasure, for our rest. It's a day to let go and remember who owns your time. It's a day to give tithes and offering and remember who owns all resources. And yet, maybe you've seen this, but it's a, the Western church is full of exhausted Christians who don't honor the Lord day, Lord's day. And they're restless. Don't think that there's rest there, but I tell you, we looked at Psalm 73 last week. Yes, there is. Remember Psalm 73? The psalmist is all out of sorts because of the wicked in the world. And he says, but then I went into the house of the Lord and then I realized I've been brutish to you and you see all the things the wicked do and I can trust you. And it happened when I came into your house on the Lord's day and I worshiped. But the Bible says more than just a day of rest, this... Sabbath is proposed as a rhythm. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, for those in the promised land, Leviticus 25, when you come into the land, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow the field. For six years prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But the seventh year shall be a a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. Rest to the Lord. So God built into the culture, the agrarian culture of his people, Rhythms of Sabbath rest, even for the land. It's even bigger than that, though. Leviticus 25 goes on and says, on the 40, After the 49th year, the year of Jubilee, consecrate the 50th year, seven times seven, proclaim liberty throughout the land to its inhabitants. Each of you shall return his property, and each of you shall return to your clan. Here's what God's done. Every 49 years, all the debts that oppressed his people were let go. So I don't have time to get into lot. Here's all I'm saying is when you see the word Sabbath rest in Hebrews chapter 4, it's not just a reflection of a day. It's a reflection of a life rhythm that trusts in the fact that God has set about these rhythms for us to experience salvation as his rest. So, Maybe you know this or not, I've tried over the last years, especially since Pastor Bill's been here in AJ, I try on every seventh week not to preach. Nobody commands that. It's a Sabbath rhythm, though, to say can I recover and study and take a break? It's a seventh year as a pastor. What a blessing to have the elders offer a Sabbath time for my family. January will be seven years, and so we're breaking a little bit of it this summer, then next summer. It's just Seeking to honor the Lord's rhythm of rest. Not everybody can do it the same way I understand it, but my question is, do you have a rhythm of obedience to a sabbatical life that sees salvation as rest? But then here's the problem. This is going to lead us to the Lord's Supper. You and I, we can honor the Sabbath day. We can try to create sabbatical rhythms. But in Hebrews 4.11, we are told that the thing we want rest from the most is what? Sin and unbelief. Those who enter that rest no longer fall into the God-rejecting disobedience that happened in the wilderness. How does rest from sin happen? I love this passage. Verse 12 and 13, the author of Hebrews says, By the exposure that comes from the word. That's an ironic thing, isn't it? Saving rest comes by being fully naked and exposed before God. That sounds like the least restful thing ever. That sounds horrible. It's easier to hide. I don't want to be exposed for what I am. How can that be rest? Well, look at what the author of Hebrews does in chapter 4. He says, God's rest, God's word, and then in verse 14, God's son the exposure that happens of our sin that we can't give rest to on our own leads us to believe in the high priest who suffered all the restlessness of sin but didn't sin himself, who suffered the wrath of God against those who were restlessly disobedient in the wilderness like we can be in our hearts. But he died, he rose, he resurrected, he ascended to the Father where he is now seated at the right hand of God as the high priest until the day he comes to bring Eternal rest. The way we rest now in this moment and in that moment is to ask for God to expose us to ourselves and to his word. That when we're exposed to ourselves and to his word, we see his son. And then we believe in the work his son does as our high priest. And suddenly, I can rest from the work of trying to fix my sin and weakness on my own. Or you can rest from the guilt you could never make go away. You can rest from the shame that you're tempted to want to hide and cover. And it happens through continual exposure through the word that points us to our needing the perfect work of Jesus, our high priest. And for those that believe that, the Bible says a Sabbath rest remains that will never Ever end for time I won't read it but I could read Isaiah 61 that glorious vision of a lion eating straw with an ox and all these weird visuals of what the new heavens and the earth could look like with peace and rest and Isaiah 65 excuse me not 61 Isaiah 65 says my chosen will long enjoy the work of their hands work will be enjoyable Somehow not at odds with rest. We could read from Revelation 21 that the new heavens and new earth, there's nothing to cry about anymore. Death is gone. Nothing to be tired about. Only for those for whom Jesus is the high priest who have their restless sin exposed by the word. Because they believe salvation is rest. So, I'm going to just ask you to pray as I'm praying for you. That on this brief 38 days, sounds like a lot, it is a lot. I'm thrilled. 5 a.m. tomorrow, we are out. And it'll sound awful to ask, but I'll ask you not to text or call. Just because you don't know what happens in my mind when anybody's message shows up on my cell phone when I'm eating dinner with my family. Even if it's a great thing, how many times I jump up and I celebrate with somebody else, and Corey reminds me that one of the kids was telling a story about school, or it's something negative or unwisely sent So I ask you to pray that this 45-year-old pastor and his family would be exposed by the word, not to try to teach it to anyone, but just to believe it, and that the exposure to the word and the believing of it will bring our family back to you, more confident in the finished, perfect work of our high priest than ever before and willing to reorient rhythms of life that right now need a pause to be remade into something new. The Lord's Supper that we're about to turn to, Pastor Bill will come and lead, but allow me to give this intro and then I'll pray. It's for exhausting, exhausted, repenting sinners. That's who the Lord's Supper is for. Let me pray. Father, nourish us now by means of this sacrament. Thank you for this sign, this seal, this wonderful gift. And thank you for this day and for this church and for your word and for our high priest. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.